A reading of the Scriptures from Jude, verses 1 to 2. So uh, let us hear the, uh, the ancient words of the, the living God, His living Word, uh, here in Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Uh, Jude is, uh, as you know, the uh, uh, brother of Jesus, half-brother, obviously, uh, but nonetheless uh, uh, comes uh, from the family in which our uh, Savior uh, was born into. Uh, and therefore, he's part of the first generation of the followers of his, of his brother. Uh, it's very instructive uh, when you think about families, when you think about companies, even nations, they go through different cycles, uh, good times and bad times. It's instructive to me that this is the first generation. And what Jude is going to write us about is uh, unprecedented trouble already in the first generation. Uh, just a quick text to uh, manifest uh, his family, uh, Matthew uh, chapter 13 and uh, verse 55. Uh, we read, uh, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas. Judas, of course, uh, being Jude. Uh, the author of our, of our text this morning. Uh, it is, I think, uh, worth mentioning that he passes over uh, the familiar uh, intimacy that uh, his family had to have shared uh, simply for the title of servant and his relationship with his brother James. You know, we, I mean, we do live in kind of a culture that likes to drop names and uh, he passes over that. Uh, perhaps uh, for whatever reason, God has humbled him, but he, he does refer to one of the great titles of the Scriptures, uh, and that is that he was a servant. It's something that all of us uh, are called to be as followers of Christ. It's not some special designation. Uh, we are all to be servants, and we ought all to, uh, to serve. Uh, as you might well expect, uh, he initially was dubious and skeptical of his brother. I mean, who wouldn't be? Uh, perhaps there's a hint of that in Matthew chapter 12 and uh, verse uh, 46. Uh, while he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his uh, mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. I wonder if they're not... You know, Jesus, it's time to come home. Uh, this itinerant ministry is something you ought to uh, perhaps uh, give up and uh, live a normal life. Uh, I mean, we don't really know, but I suspect there's uh, something of that that's here. They come perhaps to try to uh, get him out of controversy. Uh, but uh, as is true of all of us, Jude is chained by the, changed by the resurrection. It's that one great life-changing event. Christ rose from the dead conquered the grave, defeated death, uh, and, uh, and lives. It's true of all of us. You become a Christian, uh, your spirit was resurrected. And uh, the bodily resurrection, of course, waits 
Uh, but nonetheless, the most transformational event of all time, the resurrection of the God-man, uh, conquering of death. Uh, not only is he changed, he becomes an itinerant missionary and uh, preacher. Uh, we know that from uh, 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 9, uh, in the fifth verse. Uh, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? So again, uh, Jude was out ministering because he was a servant. Uh, you and I are gifted in manifold different ways, but nonetheless, uh, the overarching title, we are servants, we're to minister. Uh, in Jude's case, uh, he was an itinerant preacher. Uh, he writes of uh, an immediate danger of apostasy, which I think is interesting because he's part of the first generation of followers. You would think, well, you know, things are going to go okay for a while. <laughs> you know, But no, he's writing of an immediate Danger of apostasy uh, and the threat of antinomianism from the libertines who profess the faith but who deny its uh, life-changing power. Uh, the word antinomian is a very interesting word. It's, I really think the danger that Jude is writing of. Uh, uh, the word literally is against the law. Uh, and so there is no law. I'm, I'm a Christian, and I don't have to obey any law. There's no rules over me. I'm above it all. Uh, and uh, therefore, it embraces uh, lawless behavior. Uh, I think becoming more and more a constituent part of American culture, and uh, sadder still, the American church is simply lawlessness. We lay claim to labels, but we live our lives however we want to live them, irrespective of uh, our calling. Uh, parallel text, uh, 2 Peter uh, chapter 2 and, uh, and verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers, pardon me, among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now, the word master here is quite instructive, but it, but it I think, declares uh, something of the ownership of the Lord. The uh, word in the Greek text is that from which we have our English word despot. Of course, Christ is not a despot, uh, but he's the absolute master of our lives from beginning to end. And, and therefore, he controls our thought, words, and deeds. He controls, he is to uh, be uh, the one to whom uh, we give our wholehearted devotion and uh, uh, sanctified actions. We all do it imperfectly, but nonetheless, uh, we are to do it. Well, these men uh, have uh, come into the church. They've invaded the church. And they're uh, introducing a destructive heresy that, you know, once saved, always saved. You don't have to worry about uh, moral issues, uh, things don't, you know, you're a Christian, uh, live your life however you want to, abandon yourself. Uh, and so that is what Peter and Jude, of course, are writing of. It's a grave danger. Uh, but nonetheless, for us, uh, it is a stark reminder that uh, Jesus is our Lord and he is our master. Uh, we owe him allegiance in all things. And if there's something that you are doing to which you cannot give him allegiance, then you probably ought to stop doing it immediately because you owe him allegiance in everything. 
Uh, Jude uh, marks out the times for us in a very uh, particular way. If you look at the 18th verse, this very brief epistle, we read, and they were saying to you, in the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Again, you can see the antinomianism, uh, but, but notice the phrase in the last time. Because that's critical for us to understand the broader theological concept of the days in which we live. And they're the same days in which uh, Jude lived, the last days. And part of what that means uh, is that the end time tribulation prophesied in the scriptures has begun, it started. Uh, the particular reference here in the book of Jude, and it's true in 2 Peter and elsewhere, in which that manifests itself is the presence of false teachers that have invaded the church and gained a foothold. Uh, we simply don't think of in those terms in Oklahoma. Uh, we think of tribulation as something perhaps uh, distant. Other people will go through it, we're going to escape it. If Jude uses the phrase, the last times or the last days, and he does, then he is saying to us that the end time tribulation has begun, and one of the manifestations of it is the presence of false teachers. That they have invaded the church. And they're receiving, I think, a worldwide audience in the church. Uh, the application for us, of course, is manifest. that We live in very, very dangerous times. Not perhaps in America because of physical persecution, uh, but because of tribulation from false doctrine, false theology that's gained a lodgment in the life of the church. If you think of perhaps one of the greatest invasions in the history of the world, it's the Normandy invasion. Uh, Allied troops uh, obviously land upon uh, the beaches of France, Normandy, and uh, they, they gain a lodgment. They gain a foothold. And the more that time passed, the more that that foothold grew uh, until their lodgment became secure. And they secured a base of continual operations uh, to supply the advancement of the Allied forces. I'm suggesting that's occurred in the American church. False teachers and false prophets have gained a lodgment it's a marker of the end time tribulation, and uh, they've been well entrenched for decade upon decade. So we live in dangerous times, uh, spiritually dangerous times. Uh, uh, some of the minor manuscripts in the Greek text add to the Gentiles, which is interesting because antinomianism would predominate more among Gentiles than it would among Jews, who had a very tight moral code. Uh, but it is the reminder to all of us in the words of Thomas Jefferson that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. If you want to be free in the church of Jesus Christ, you must be eternally vigilant for false teachers who always come along peddling their wares. It's one of the reasons around our church we have continual reminders of the theology of the Protestant Reformation as a historic marker to what we believe. It's not just a historical event. 
Uh, it is a manifestly spiritual event, the greatest revival of all times, a rediscovery of the great doctrines of the church that had been smothered. Uh, and so again, a great, a great battle is engaged. Uh, and, and that is part of the dangerous Christians. We don't like battle. We don't like warfare. We don't like confrontation. Uh, but it, it must be engaged uh, because of the invasion of false teachers. And that we must be eternally vigilant. Uh, just because we're safe today, there's no guarantee that we'll be safe tomorrow. Uh, and I'm always amazed, quite frankly, of professing Christians that I know that go to church that have long since departed from their confessional standards, as if it's no big deal. Uh, and that's one of our problems in America. We're casual about everything, and we're certainly casual about theology, and it's no big deal. But it is a big deal, and that's why Jude is writing this epistle. If it wasn't a big deal, he wouldn't say it's the last times and that we've been invaded. Uh, the letter is a circular one reaching a wider audience in a sing singular geographic locale. Uh, application to us, of course, is that it should uh, engage all of us, but uh, something that we should share with people that we know who think perhaps that all is well. Uh, when the great doctrinal statements of the church have been utterly diluted to such an extent that we can barely determine uh, what they mean, what they are, and who believes them. And quite frankly, in America, we really don't care. Because this is a culture where believe whatever you want to believe. It's like my favorite metaphor taught to me by a friend of mine. Uh, I can play the greatest game of golf in the world if I can keep my own scorecard. And that's what we do in the American church. We just keep our own scorecard. But there is a greater scorecard that needs to engage uh, the end-time tribulation of false teachers. Well, in verse 1, a greeting is made to those provisioned by God. In verse 2, a prayer is offered for the divine attributes necessary to secure the continued safety of his readers. Uh, it's interesting to me in this text, but it's true of many, many uh, texts in the Scriptures that Jude begins with God. And he also ends with God. Uh, it should be true of our lives. Every day we should begin with God. We should end with God. Uh, our life should be known by the great bookends of, of uh, God how we started and God how we ended. So let's, let's uh, begin with the divine provisions. Uh, <clears throat> because they are a reminder... Uh, that the times uh, call for desperate action, and that's what God does. He, he acts uh, in provision for his people. Uh, and so Jude begins with divine provision captured in our relationship with God. Uh, much of the rest of the epistle is how we ought to uh, deal with these false teachers, but he begins with God. And first, in the New American Standard, uh, we read uh, to those who are the call. Uh, this word is a use of the divine initiative 
in the efficacious uh, call of God, and by that I mean uh, God uh, not only calls, but He brings uh, those, uh, all those who He intended to bring, and and uh, therefore calling is imbued with a, uh, a measure of the power of God, not just to call, like I'm calling you, uh, but when God calls, He has the power to bring. And so the call is, uh, engages a, a measure uh, of which we call the efficacious call of God. It's an effective call. It's a remarkable engagement of the blessedness of our God uh, because His call has inherent power within it. Uh, and that He secures every object to whom He dispatches His, his call. Uh, it is uh, perhaps the theology uh, that we read very clearly in uh, Paul's epistle to the Roman church uh, in the uh, eighth verse where this word is used. Going to re begin reading in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called and what follows according to His purpose. God's call is purposeful. Uh, he has a purpose. Everyone that he issues is efficacious calling. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. So God predestines. And then in time, he calls his people, all whom he predestined to come to life in Jesus Christ. And whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Uh, Benjamin Warfield has referred to this eternal chain, if you will, of, of our glorious redemption uh, that God predestines and then to effect his decree of predestination, he issues a call. And everyone he calls, he, he, he justifies, he, he sanctifies, he glorifies. A remarkable provision of God. Uh, it's one of the reasons that the true church stands firm, even though it's been invaded, uh, it stands firm because of him who called us. Uh, in, the, in the Greek text, uh, this word called is uh, found at the end of the sentence. Uh, Jude didn't have our modern conveniences of uh, computers and printers, and sometimes when uh, we're writing a letter on a computer, if we want to highlight something, we can bold it, we can underline it, or put it in italics. Uh, the authors of the Greek text would just simply change word order. So it's very instructive that this word is last in the sentence. Uh, so it highlights uh, the remarkable grace of God in calling uh, His elect. And it's meant, of course, to remind us of the divine provision. Uh, because you and I live in a world of myriads of callings. And some of those callings attempt to, to seduce us from the call of God. But because God has called us, we cannot be seduced. And if, if 
in the folly of our irresponsibility, we are seduced. We are to be recovered. And what recovers us? A reminder that God called me to be faithful to Jesus Christ even to the end. Because I can remind all of you from my own personal life and biography and experience, and I trust it resonates with many of you, that sometimes we get seduced. And what recovers us is understanding the fact that in eternity past, God predestinated us and called us in time to be faithful to the Savior. That word is used in uh, 1 Corinthians. Very interesting uh, epistle because they had many problems, just like you and I have many problems. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. That you and I are saints by calling. It suggests that we become somewhat deaf to the sirens of the world and light of Him who called us. The application that I'm trying to press as hard as I can is that you need to remember that God has called you to be faithful to Jesus Christ irrespective of the, of the price that must be paid. We are saints by calling. Uh, we are called to a certain uh, godly conduct as well as doctrinal truth. And that is the, perhaps the greater point of this text. Doctrinal truth. Vast majority of the church in Oklahoma and America in charge cares less about doctrinal truth. Uh, and that's the dangerous times in which we live. And we're to be different. We're saints by calling. Secondly, Jude says, by the work of God in our lives, uh, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father. Powerful marker. In the midst of all of our imperfections and all of our failures, uh, all of our warts and freckles, we're beloved of God. Very powerful illustration of this in my own mind in uh, English politician Cromwell had his painting done. And uh, like me, Cromwell had some facial imperfections, you know, warts. And uh, the painter didn't include the warts. Cromwell said, include them, warts and all. Because all of us have them. They just are manifested in different ways. And yet, and yet, Jude says we are beloved of God. From eternity past, God loved us. There's never been a time which God did not love us and set His affections upon us. We are loved. I'm so reminded in our culture uh, that so many people do not love love. Families in ruin, little children abused, and on and on. But uh, we are the beloved of God. It is a marker. We're not only called uh, by God, but we are beloved of Him. His love surrounds us, envelops us, is always upon us. Uh, the, uh, the verbal uh, aspect here is of completed action in past time with continuing results to the present. You know, sometimes you and I go in and out of relationships. We have, you know, maybe uh, some educational institution or perhaps. Uh, of work, we 
we have a dear friend and then we get transferred or we lose our jobs or we graduate or whatever the case might be. We simply move geographically. And uh, that dear friend is gone just because of time and circumstance and place. Uh, God always loves us wherever we are. Never departs from us. I mean, I'm not unmindful that in the Greek text, uh, the verbal aspect of the purpose of the perfect tense does not forecast the future, but of course, theology does. And that's why theology is such an important hermeneutic to understanding the words of the New Testament. Uh, because the love of God is eternal and immutable. It is always upon us. The words of the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, verse 39, for what can separate us? Who can separate us from the love of God? A rhetorical question, the answer is nothing. In the darkest times of your life, nothing separates you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And we go through dark times. And if you're young and you haven't, uh, you will. Uh, but the love of God is uh, the light of your life. And it is meant to be, of course, that theological understanding that holds you firm uh, within the orthodoxy of, uh, of the Scriptures and the church. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 are from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and who released us from our sins by His blood. That's what God does in His love. didn't owe it to us. He was under no obligation. But because He loved us, He released us from our sins and granted to us eternal forgiveness. Uh, those are powerful markers meant to hold us uh, when uh, doctrinal winds seek to blow us off course. And uh, those winds will blow. And they are, and they will, and they have. So we should never forget that we are beloved of God. And we should never forget uh, the glory of Him who loved us and who released us and washed us from our sins, granted everlasting and eternal forgiveness in one great eternal event upon the cross as an expression of that we are the beloved of God. And so, three provisions of God uh, called uh, beloved and now the third. Uh, that we are kept New American Standard reads, uh, for Jesus Christ, I prefer a different translation, by Jesus Christ. But again, what a great reminder in light of the fact that the end time tribulation has begun. Uh, in Christ, the firstborn of the dead, who was faithful, he was the faithful witness. He did not compromise uh, even in death. Uh, and so... Uh, 
We are by His work in an inviolable union with the Eternal Father, a union that's transcendent. Uh, many unions in life, but the first and foremost, we belong to God. Uh, and being in Him is a locale of preeminent safety uh, for which all threats uh, must turn away. And which if, and sometimes they will be temporarily successful, must give us back. They cannot hold us. Sometimes in folly and in irresponsibility, uh, we, we wander, like in the words of the great hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Uh, but the great threats to those who belong to God through Jesus Christ must eventually let us go. They cannot hold us uh, because we uh, are beloved of God and are kept uh, by Jesus Christ. I take it that Christ is the agent. <clears throat> and so that's why I prefer the preposition by. Uh, there is, uh, it, it perhaps as uh, uh, you might be aware, a precedence for this in our Lord's high priestly prayer. If you were to turn to uh, uh, that prayer in uh, John uh, chapter, chapter 17. Because we have a beautiful illustration of what this means in the prayer of our Lord uh, on behalf of His disciples, and then, of course, ultimately, all of us theologically. So, uh, John chapter 17, and uh, uh, the 12th uh, verse. Uh, While I was with them, I was keeping them in Thy name, which Thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Uh, not one of them perished. In other words, totally, absolutely successful at every point. He guarded and he was successful in all that he guarded. Uh, in uh, the sports world, and particularly the baseball world, uh, if you have a batting average of, let's say, 333%, uh, you're going to find yourself in great demand because that's, a, that's an outstanding batting average. Which means what, though? You're successful only? That's right, a third of the time. Yeah. How well secure we would be if Christ said, Father, I kept a third of them. 333%. The American League would want to draft me. Of course, you and I find that to be nonsense. Uh, I kept and I guarded all that thou hast given me. If there were any other way, ladies and gentlemen, none of us would ever make it because the forces of the tides of this world are too powerful. He was successful and lost none. Uh, Revelation chapter uh, 3 and verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, that's our responsible part, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. It's another verse that we could, uh, we could use to say that the hour of testing has begun. Uh, and uh, the point of those who are being kept is that they will pass safely through it. Uh, their spirits will be preserved. Uh, they will come through the test. 
and they will uh, not only begin the test, but emerge from it. And if they are the called and beloved and kept by Jesus Christ, all will emerge. And no one else will. Because the forces are so manifestly powerful that were it not for God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, none would make it. Absolutely none would make it. The verb speaks uh, to guarding and watching. That we have an eternal sentry uh, to whom our souls are committed. I mean, I love the great stories about angels because angels watch over us. Uh, but, but this is also peculiarly in terms of the eternal providence of God. I'm not withstand, uh, undermining that he uses a means because he does. He uses angels and he uses purveyors of truth and orthodoxy. Uh, but, but God keeps and guards us. Uh, we have just this in Psalm 121 uh, in verses 5 to 7. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I mean, you can see the, the merism there. You're going out and you're coming in and every step in between. If it were any other venue than that, none of us would make it. We might start the race, but completing it would be a different matter. Not unmindful of the American church, the vast majority of young people in the church, grow up in the church. When they leave home, they leave something else. They leave the church. Unless they're called, beloved, and kept by the power of God. It implies here with God is our century, an effective result given the divine agent. First uh, Peter uh, chapter 1 and verse 4 is descriptive of this. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, if all that Peter had said who are protected, none of us would emerge successful. He doesn't say that. He says protected by the power of God. And that is what enables us to emerge. It is true, manifestly true, that we're to keep the faith. We're to keep the doctrinal content of the faith. We'll learn about that in Jude 3 and 4. Uh, the baton has been passed to us. We're to keep. But ultimately, the causality must be divine so that we are being kept. And if we're not being kept by the power of God, none of us would keep. We would eventually fade away like so many young people leaving their homes who've had enough of the church, enough of the show, who haven't really been taught the doctrine that can keep them and hold them, preserve them, the right understanding. It's by the power of God that we come to faith, by the power of God that we emerge successful to the end.
that the Lord is our guardian and cannot fail to secure all entrusted to Him by the Father. We are assailed on every side by many forces and a multitude of threats, but they cannot overcome our Savior. And because He overwatches us, uh, bad theology cannot gain a lodgment in our hearts. And if it does, it's only seasonal. Uh, But be very careful of falling prey to false teachers and false prophets. You know, by the way, perhaps it's worthwhile just to stop for a moment. Perhaps there's someone here who knows not the Savior. Uh, The Gospel is is that Christ uh, ransomed His life, the one for the many. He secures for His people eternal life and the love of God the Father. And He protects their soul throughout their life. If you're not a Christian, there's no one to protect you. You will not make it without Christ. You are not strong enough, wise enough, careful enough. The tides will get you. They will come for you and sweep you away. And therefore, your only hope is to perhaps begin this day to place your faith, your belief and your trust in Christ who redeems His people. And who for us this morning reminds us everywhere that He protects our soul so that we will emerge safely to the presence of eternal life. That we are, to be sure, assailed, but we are unassailable. And furthermore, the radical change in our lives that's the product of the new birth engages our loyalty. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, and verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. The new birth is the beginning of it all. And in the new birth, the evil one must uh, give us uh, safe passage uh, because our souls have been purchased. Uh, Reminder that we're to be responsible, we're to keep, but we're also being kept. Uh, Another reminder of this is 2 Peter uh, chapter 3 and verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Keep. Be on your guard, lest being carried away by the air of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Again, we are to be responsible. We're not to go through life willy-nilly of this as if nothing is uh, important, uh, casual about everything, uncaring virtually about uh, everything except for our own self-interest. We're to keep. But Jude is reminding us uh, that we are being kept. Well, then Jude, uh, having uh, ascribed to us uh, the great work of God the Father and God the Son, the office of prayer. Because the times are dangerous, incredibly dangerous in the American church. Uh, And the prayer is meant to secure a continued safety from doctrinal threats and false teachers. Dangerous times make for a praying people. Necessity of prayer, part of the means that we lay hold of for steadfastness. And for this, Jude engages heaven. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. He's asking for spiritual multiplication of the nature of God within the church. These are divine attributes. He's praying that they would be prevalent in the life of the church. Mercy, peace, and love. Be multiplied. 
Who does the multiplying? Well, God does. Uh, when I was in the Army, if I heard the term force, force multiplier one time, I'm sure I heard it a thousand times. Uh, but it is simply that there are force multipliers that make us successful. Uh, if you're an infantryman, uh, you have artillery, you have close air support. Uh, you have incredible logistical support to multiply your abilities on the battlefield. Well, I know that bores most of you, but I'm just simply trying to stress that uh, there is a force multiplier to the church, and that are the virtues that come from God himself to keep us successful. Mercy, peace, and love. Uh, this is not a battle, ladies and gentlemen, with which we can be engaged alone. Uh, the virtues of God himself must abide with us. That we need God's protection and resolve. And Jude asks for all of this and more. Uh, the passive uh, voice uh, here may be multiplied means that God is going to act upon us. And therefore, he's doing the multiplying. And as such, Jude repairs to the divine nature. The request is in light of the seriousness of the threat. We don't take hardly anything in America today seriously except maybe our football or some sport or some entertainment event. But, uh, this is meant to awaken the church to danger that abounds. The libertines offer a theology to the delight of the flesh, and that's the danger. Uh, that you can have divine assurance and peace with God irrespective of uh, the sanctifying power of God. That we need God desperately to check our own lust, lest they overcome us. And we desperately God to guard us, lest we become prey to false doctrine. Well, the first element of our prayer is for mercy. It's a prayer for relief from the threat and the ensuing warfare when the threat is engaged. We also need mercy for something else. To engage the threat. Uh, most of us uh, recoil from confrontation. The church cannot recoil. It cannot go into retreat. It must engage the threat uh, of doctrinal uh, compromise. And when error is present, and it always is, because we are living in the days of the end time tribulation, it must be engaged. We live in the last times, the last days. Uh, and therefore, the threat is ever present. Uh, in this regard, mercy sustains us. Look at verses 22 and 23 of our text. And have mercy on some who are doubting, and save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. He begins asking for mercy, and he concludes asking for mercy. And there is never a day, ladies and gentlemen, in your life from the first waking moment of your day until you close your eyes upon your soft pillow, that you are not in constant need of the mercy of our great God to protect and preserve and keep us. Secondly, he asks for peace. Peace is, in a measure, the absence of conflict to the end that God would bring unanimity and doctrine so that other pursuits can be engaged. The danger is always present. and The peace of God... Uh, is uh, required in the life of church. It's also a sense of well-being and spiritual prosperity necessary for confidence in the throes of battle. 
Lastly, he prays uh, for love. That we need to know God's love in the conflict. It's a sustaining force. I mentioned this uh, at the outset. That, that we must always know that we're beloved of God. But it's also important that we need to be loving in dealing with error. The importance of, uh, let's turn again to the final verses, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. We're to keep. We're also being kept. The two go together. We engaged because uh, God engages us, and uh, we're to be loving because we're beloved. Uh, and error is a difficult thing to deal with sometimes, and we must engage error with love. Uh, sometimes the weariness of the conflict can make us rigid and harsh. So we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. Uh, but nonetheless, we're to engage error. And so we, uh, we began this uh, very brief epistle uh, with the provision of God and a prayer for which to receive uh, the virtues necessary for perseverance and faithfulness for critical battles uh, as a part of the end time tribulation and testing. That the church has been invaded and most people have turned the alarm off and gone back to sleep. We must do otherwise. Uh, And we must uh, deal with uh, the majesty of God Uh, because he has called us, uh, he has loved us, and he has kept us by Jesus Christ. And he grants to us uh, the presence of his virtue that we would be faithful in the fight and faithful to the end. And that's my prayer that uh, in uh, the year for which we are about to begin, uh, that this text might awaken us all to danger but also remind us of that which is so necessary, the grace and mercy of God, the love of God which has touched us from eternity past. And uh, may that grace and mercy and love abide upon us in the new year to the end that we would be faithful in light of Him who was and is the faithful witness, our Savior.